This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. This is the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. And guess what? I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. That's right, editor-at-large and cartoonist of Mississippi Today. James Howard Meredith, American civil rights activist, writer, political advisor, and Air Force veteran, inspired by John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, was the first African-American student admitted to the formerly racially segregated University of Mississippi. Today, we're celebrating the diamond anniversary of his enrollment at Ole Miss with a few of the contributors to from his newest book, James Meredith, Breaking the Barrier, celebrating the 60th anniversary of Meredith's 1962 enrollment at the University of Mississippi. This book, and it's really, it's excellent from what I've read on it, is edited by Ole Miss journalist professor Dr. Kathleen W. Wickham and features contributors Dorothy Gilliam and the first American African-American reporter hired by the Washington Post and Sidna Brower-Mitchell, former student editor of the Daily Mississippian, who's editorial calling for comp. Now, can you imagine that? Seriously, being a student at that time in the middle of the riot and putting out a newspaper, being the editor of the Daily Mississippian and having the foresight and the grown-upness, I guess we'll use that word, uh, to actually call for calm in the middle of one of the darkest moments in Ole Miss and American history. Just incredible bravery that she had. Uh, and for that calm, she received a lot of heckling, but also a Pulitzer Prize nomination for her effort. All three, of course, will be joining us today to discuss the book and their contributions connected with this historic paradigm shift in Mississippi and in U.S. history. But right now, let's just go ahead and welcome Ms. Sidna Brower-Mitchell to the show. And congratulations on the um, compilation of the book and your contributions to Mississippi civil rights history. And Sidna, I'll be really honest with you. Uh, My son writes a column for the Daily Mississippi right now, and I shared your story from the book with him. And I said, always remember to be courageous instead of trying to be popular. And you did that. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Well, I mean, seriously. Yeah, go ahead. I look at some of the headlines today, and it's not so much of what's accurate or what's objective, but it's what's going to grab the headline and the readers. So uh, I'm glad that you passed that on to him. Yeah, I tell you, and of course, I've you know, being in the media business for as long as I've been in, too. I mean, it's like everybody's chasing clicks now. And and you're right. And, you know, it's funny. And just seeing your history and, of course, reading your your piece in there, it, it, talking about, you know, initially when you you were encountering the national press in Oxford in 1962, when things were starting to build up and you saw, like, for instance, there was no news at the time and they were kind of making news. And so you kind of had a cynical view initially of the news media even back then. Well, yes, because we would get almost daily briefings uh, from George Street, one of the administrators, um, at, around the Lyceum, which is the main building there. And uh, one day there was no news, and one of the cameramen said, well, you know, I got about 50 feet or whatever. I got to send back to New York. Somebody do something, dance or do something. And then one student obeyed and tried to climb the flagpole and put up a Confederate flag. And so that became the news. It was made up. 
I mean, everyone was just standing there, you know, waiting to hear. No one really demonstrating or saying anything. So, yes, I became very cynical. And even today when I watch the news or read uh, the newspapers, um, I uh, can be a little cynical. Your dad kind of gave you some advice, didn't he? He told you to basically do what was right, didn't he? Yes, he did. And and I have my father to thank for a lot of things. Um, one that I think really bode me well, not only at Ole Miss, but throughout my life, was to accept people for who they are, yeah. not the color of their skin, not where they live, not how much money they have, or what church they go to. And um, that's made a big difference in my life then and even today. And that was not, let's just be kind of uh, kind, that was not the prevailing opinion that <laughs> during that time at Ole Miss. <laughs> not at all. And and even though I felt that James Meredith had a right to be there, after all, he paid taxes, just like the white folks. Um, but I felt that if I said that, that would only create more problems and more havoc. And so basically almost all my editorials appeal to to law and order and saying that violence won't help. This is a university. We ought to be able to accept different people and different opinions. I thought it was interesting that you were at the football game down in Jackson uh, that where Ross Barnett spoke. And, you know, I mean, I've spoken with Curtis Wilkie about it, and he just said it was absolutely like a, right before a wildfire started. It was just – it was electric. You could kind of feel the tension in the air. And then when he gave the speech, it was like literally everybody hopped in their cars and, and made the four-hour trip up to Oxford. Yeah. yeah, well, what was particularly interesting, I thought, was Barnett wouldn't even show up at Ole Miss football games for fear of being – tomatoes thrown at him but at that uh game in jackson he was a real hero as they sang you know roll with ross and uh yes some of them did yeah that's um that that is an interesting point i think that's something that curse told me too that he wasn't terribly popular up until that point and and he he figured out that he had something that he could hang on to and boy he did let's talk about you a little bit when did you decide that you wanted to get into journalism Oh, I guess it goes back to my teenager years. Um, there was a youth group at Temple Baptist Church in Memphis, and so I started uh, a, sort of a little newsletter uh, back in the days of mimeograph, and um, I decided that I wanted to get into journalism. And um, I uh, I had hoped to go to, like, Baylor but my father had recently started his own business and couldn't afford to send me to Baylor, and I got a scholarship to Ole Miss, and that's where I went. And thanks to James Meredith, I got uh, quite a uh, offer for jobs and, and a whole career. Yeah, I mean, talk about being in the, I guess, the right place at the right time, but there was a cost, obviously, to it, and we'll get to that yeah. in just a minute. Um, you know, I'm, 
you know, like I said, I did five years at my student newspaper when I was in college, and it was a great laboratory. It's how I learned how to do what I do, you know, with the cartoons and everything. But uh, for you, you obviously were very good at what you did because you got to the rank as being the editor, and um, which means you had to put out a paper. Let's talk about that night and, you know, what was going through your head as you're sitting there watching literally the world unwind and unspool, and you're sitting there thinking, I got to get a paper out, and what voice and what do I say? I mean, talk about that whole process. Well, I think exactly of, of going through my mind, what do I say, and how can I appeal to people? Um, and originally, I sort of thought that, you know, I was just dealing with students. Um, but where the journalism building was in those days was right at the entrance to the university. And the doors were open because I had told the media that they could use our telephones, our typewriters, our uh, uh, photo lab. But then when outsiders started coming and the viciousness in, in their voice and the looks on their face, uh, was really frightening, and and I decided, you know, I've, this is really not just the students that maybe other people will be reading this and understand that basically this was a, a war fought a century ago, um, and violence won't help. Then I'm, as a female, I had to be in my... Uh, sorority house. Females had to be back in their rooms by 11 o'clock. So that not only was there a deadline, there was a timeline that had to get all of this done. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, I remember on 9-11 trying to get my cartoon done by the extra edition that we had. And I mean, I had like an hour to put, you know, and that was just one cartoon. You were putting out a whole paper. And then on top of that, there was no guarantee that this this paper would even be distributed. Um, would be distributed. I can't even speak. Distributed. Thank you, thank you. Um, but like I said, and you luckily Johnny Armstrong from Phi uh, Delta Theta, and uh, some help with the Christian uh, reporter from the Christian Science Monitor. You kind of had angels that came and helped you get the paper out. Amen. And I always thought it was the Phi Delta pledges that that uh, Johnny had commandeered. But years later. You know, I wanted to test my memory, and I talked to him, and he said, no, it was a reporter from the Christian Science Monitor. Wow. So uh, I was so thankful that, that one Johnny stepped up and he had some help. It, so it, not all lawyers are bad. <laughs> well, I mean, he definitely was a hero that night, and as as were your, you were, too, because your message was spot on. And, of course, in the book, your editorial is in there. I will not spoil too much of it. I'll just say this that when you put that out there, did you have any idea of what the blowback would be? Not at all. Um, you know, I basically was writing for the Daily Mississippian and never dreamed of all the national media. And even uh, later, Chancellor Williams thanked me for having a voice of reason. Wow. Because he was really caught between a rock and a hard place uh, with the uh, board and with alumni in terms of what he could say or couldn't say or do. And uh, that meant a lot to me to get that. In fact, the, the um, staff or, or the, the, the uh, 
professors were very supportive, not only uh, when the campus Senate censured me, but just in terms of the night of the riot uh, on television, there was a picture of a car uh, on fire. And that was very similar to the car that I had. So my parents were very worried about my safety and couldn't get through to me. And uh, Dr. Noyes wrote them a letter and told them that I was safe and to not worry about my safety. Yeah, that's incredible. That, yeah, I mean, people don't realize, I mean, it's not like you text mom and dad and say, I'm okay. Right. <laughs> it was a little different. But, you know, it's, it, a lot of people don't realize that during that time um, that a lot of the people that had become the biggest stars in the media world were there on campus covering that. Yep. It was just yeah. ever, you know, it was just incredible who was there to cover it. So it was, um, I can't even imagine that night. And of course you were in, in Brady Hall for most of it, but you got to see, I mean, you had to go through checkpoints to get even back to your sorority house. Well, actually it was the next morning oh, wow. uh, to get from the sorority house to the, um, Brady Hall. <laughs> so at that, that point that there night, were actually, yeah, at that, that point there actually were checkpoints because I guess during the ride there was, it was just a free-for-all at that point. Yeah, and, and but getting to the sorority house had to cut through the lower part of the grove and, you know, everything was dark, loud noises, and gunshots. Fortunately, uh, the UPI photographer escorted me so I felt a little safer as a yeah. bullet whiz past us, but uh, it indeed was a scary time. Okay, back up. A bullet whizzed past you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, Okay, so the student senate censured you. Forty years later, they uncensored you, so that's some good news. So there, obviously, a lot of the the sins that were committed against you were were finally uh, resolved later on. Yeah, that that was one of the most moving events in my life, because uh the campus senate, I found out who were my friends and and who were not uh, back when they voted to censure me. Uh, and, and that included my business manager. That included people that uh, I thought were totally against me, and yet they stood up and um, were, were warning the other students what a censure might mean to, to uh, the outside world. Um, and th- later even I got uh, comments from people, well, they only voted against me or, or voted to censure me because they were um, going into politics and they felt that that would help them. Um, so it was uh, another reason I became a little more cynical. Yeah, I can understand that as well. And congratulations on the Pulitzer nomination. And I can't even imagine, I mean, I was 33 when I got mine. I can't even imagine being 21 and getting it. Um, but it was well-deserved. And I know you probably at the time thought, no, but... Um, <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine a 21 getting it. But I will tell you this, um, I applaud you for your courage. And I just wanted to thank you for taking a little bit of time talking to us today. It's just an honor for me to get to meet you and get to talk to you today. Well, I enjoyed uh, talking with you. I hope to get to meet your son. Uh, I will be down there next week at Ole Miss, so uh, hopefully I'll, I'll have a chance to, yeah, I'll to give meet him, a he- him and some of the other students. Well, he knows about you, so I'll give him a heads up and make sure that he gets a chance to come <laughs> shake your hand. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. 
I tell you what, I, I, you'll just have to excuse me a little bit. Um, I've been in the media business a long time. I've read a lot of history. And when you get to actually meet and talk to some of the people that you've read about and you admire and you admire them for their courage, it makes a big difference. And uh, in with me now, I have the pleasure of welcoming activists and former reporter of the Memphis Tri-State Defender, Jet and Ebony Magazines, and the first female African-American reporter hired by the Washington Post, um, she's a Breaking the Barrier book contributor. Ms. Dorothy Gilliam is with us. Welcome to Now You're Talking. And like I said, I you know I remember reading your story about how you came to Oxford, how you had to sleep in a funeral home. And I'm not getting ahead of the story here a little bit, but I just these were the little bits. I'm like, okay, she had to be the most courageous human being on the planet. And now I'm getting to talk to you. So I'm really, really going to enjoy this interview. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. And it's um. Your your passion for reporting is uh, obviously okay. I, I don't think a lot of people understand about how the the newspaper business worked back then, particularly. But to be a twenty four year old reporter at the Washington Post, which at the time was the second biggest newspaper in the country, uh, says an awful lot about your talent and your ability and your your just absolute energy uh, for trying to tell stories. The fact that you were the first African-American reporter at the time, too, really says a lot, a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your passion for reporting, and when did you decide you wanted to go into the media business? Well, I decided I wanted to be a journalist, um, I think, reasonably young um, in terms of my knowledge about that journalism was going to be a profession that would really open me up to new worlds. And um, at that point, um, you know, I hadn't definitely made up my mind. But, you know, newspapers had been very familiar to me. My dad was a minister in Louisville, Kentucky, where um, I grew up. And he, he always took the local newspaper every day, and then he also took the black newspaper once a week. And I started uh, delivering newspapers, and that helped me a lot. And then I got a, an, an opportunity to actually uh, work uh, for the uh, Louisville Defender. And as a secretary, I was a, a freshman at, at Ursuline College. And one day the editor came in and he said, we want you to uh, go out and cover a society story because the society editor is ill. And um, that was, you know, just an incredible experience because it, it showed me how other um, people, you know, there was a very small black middle class in Louisville, but I got to see them and I got to see the, um, the way they lived, which was different from the way a lot of other people lived. You know, they had, uh, you know, Beautiful uh, china and beautiful glasses, and so I thought this this is really is a profession that will show me a new world, and uh, and that is what really attracted me to journalism. That desire to experience and to expand and to uh, discover uh, new worlds, and. Um, I think that was uh, par partly on my mind when I went to uh, cover the uh, integration of the University of Mississippi. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit because I mean you had covered some pretty big events before then too. What were some of the the other events that you covered before you got sent to Mississippi? Well, uh, for the 
Washington Post, I was covering a lot of local events. Yeah. But before I worked at the Washington Post, I also worked for uh, the Tri-State Defender, which is a black newspaper in Memphis. I worked for Jet Magazine in Chicago. And so I had covered quite a few different things. But I think the thing that's most relevant to this conversation oh, sure. is that I had also uh, been to cover Little Rock, yeah. the integration of Little and that, once again, was, it was accidental because my boss, uh, Al, L. Alex Wilson, who was the editor, uh, he is the one who was over there covering it. And he told me, he said, you're too young and you're a girl and you don't belong over here. And I stayed at home, home and, you know, at the, the home base at our newspaper and wrote stories there. And then I... Uh, as I was watching the news on our little black and white television in the office, that the same night I saw these pictures of him being beaten by a mob. And uh, I was so upset that I called a photographer and uh, Alex, I'm sorry, uh, Ernest Withers and said, let's go, to, let's go to Little Rock. And so we went because I wanted to check on how my boss was doing. And uh, it was... That was my opportunity to really uh, sort of meet this fraternity of black reporters, primarily from the black press, um, but who had been covering this very dangerous beat uh, for for years. And um, so I, I was able to do some reporting from Little Rock. And but I think the thing that stuck both. Uh, most with me because, as I said, my boss, even though he had been beaten, he would not go to the hospital, and he he ended up still covering most of that story. But I was able to go and do some of the reporting that he used. Uh, so that was a that was the first um, you know up close and personal experience I had with um, you know real civil war coverage, which was you know as one. Black reporter said to me, he said, you know, when I go south, I cover it. I cover it with the same attitude as somebody going to war because they knew that in a lot of these locations, um, you know, the white sheriffs, if they knew they were reporters and would be writing about the things they were doing, um, you know, they, their, their lives were in danger. And so these reporters would sometimes, you know, take their, uh, typewriter and kind of wrap them up in some old clothes, and it looked like they were, uh, you know, just walking down the street with some with a uh, a, a wrapped up bundle. Uh, some of these reporters um, disguised themselves as preachers, and they put a Bible under their arm. All these things to enable them to really get into the heart of the South and get these stories and t- tell them primarily in the black press. But, now, um, oh, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I was just thinking just, you know, I mean, already if you're you're a reporter and you're going to the South, like you'd said, you're, you're already probably in danger. You're already going to be signaled out. But you, as a black reporter, you had to deal with the added insult of not being able to stay in hotels, not, you know, not being able to drink out of the water fountains. You had a whole different set of challenges that you had to do. And on top of that, there was the danger that was involved too. two. And I, and I think about when Ben Gilbert sent you, said to you, the, the Washington Post city editor, when he said, we want you to go to Oxford. 
what were your thoughts at that point? You're 24 years old. You've just been married. You, you literally, I mean, this is what you did. You, you were going to tell this story, but you also knew it was Mississippi, which at the time was probably the most dangerous place for you to go. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think the only thing that kind of um, calmed me down was the fact that I knew uh, this photographer, Ernest Withers, who I knew I could get to go with me. And, and I knew that he could also, you know, help. he knew how to help negotiate the South. And I thought, all right, he will be able to help me you know, find a, a place to sleep. He'll be able to, if we're stopped on the highway as we were, um, and, you know, challenged, you know, he would know what to say and how to get us out of it. So I think that was one of the main reasons, because I had worked with Ernest Withers when I was uh, working for the Tri-State Defender in Memphis, and he's the same person that I had gone to uh, Little Rock with. So it was that... Um, you know, I, I, I definitely uh, was aware of the thing because from Washington, you know, we were aware that, uh, you know, it was total anarchy in Oxford, Mississippi. People right. were walking around with loaded guns those gun, and, and carrying them openly. And the police would just stand, would stand by and do nothing because they had been told not to interfere. You know, so it was, you know, highly dangerous. And... We also knew that most of the black reporters were not in Oxford um, uh, because it was so dangerous. They were they were living in Memphis, yeah. and they would drive you know back and forth uh, to cover the story. So you came in from Memphis. Obviously, I fifty five did not exist at that point. You were coming down fifty one to Batesville, and you you and Ernest, which by the way, Ernest Withers does sound like a rock star. And in fact, I think this story shows how smart he was. And probably something that probably saved both of you. But you get stopped by a pickup truck, almost like a picket destroyer, you know, outside of Batesville, looking to stop media and stop people into coming into Oxford. God, that had to be terrifying. It really was. It truly was. Because, uh, you know, I knew that in Mississippi, uh, you know, they could have done anything they wanted to us without any kind of retaliation. Um, that, you know, and it was the fact that, as I said, Ernest, you know, kind of knew how to deal with it, but it was so terrifying. I just sat on my side of the, of the, uh, front seat where I was and I prayed and, you know, Ernest kind of got us through and found all these back roads finally get to Oxford. You paint such a, an incredible picture of what you found when you first got there. Uh, you know, obviously the tear gas canisters, the, you know, I mean, when you got there on October 2nd, there were, and, and this is one little tidbit I don't think I've ever heard before. There were dead squirrels lying around because they died from the tear gas. Um, you know, everybody talks yeah. about the squirrels in the grove at Ole Miss, and you think about that. and just, But, I mean, you really set the scene. And, and what you were there for was not obviously to cover the events of the riot. You were there to get the reaction of the black community in Oxford, which was not a huge community, but it was one that had not had their story told, which tell us a little bit about that. And, and I love where you ended up having to stay. Well, um yeah, I was very uh, excited to talk to the people in the community because, you know, one of the things that happens when you don't have 
diversity on newspaper staffs, and you don't have different people of different races and all that. Um, and, and especially back then, uh, you 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 people never ask them anything. They never inquire about what what they are thinking, what they were doing, and uh, so often what they're they're just stereotyped, you know, as oh they're they're fearful, you know, whatever. And um, so uh, I just find, found him, you know, eager to talk to me and uh, not afraid. I mean, you know, I, I wrote about how, you know, they, they were very, very, you know, unschooled, most of them, because they were all service workers. Um, but they would, you know, sit back and, you know, pull up those overalls and say, you know, we just couldn't believe it, but we are so grateful that James Meredith did what he did, you know, to come back as a, as a lone black man at the University of Mississippi, you know, just, it was just unbelievable to them. And um, so, it, and many years later, uh, I read about, uh, you know, some other perceptions that had been written, and I, I talk about that in my book as well, but you know, there, there was, the impression was that a lot of black people had run to the hills. They were so afraid. They just went up and pitched tents and, you know. But these people were not afraid, and they were, I mean, obviously they, they were afraid in terms of what could happen to them. But, um, you know, they were so happy to tell the story, and they were so so uh, uh, thrilled at what James Meredith had done. I mean, it, he he must have been one of the most courageous men in the world because you know Mississippi for black people was was just life was as cheap as dirt, black life. I, I you know I've gotten to interview Mr. Meredith before, and um, I I just don't know how I think Navy SEALs would have cracked under the pressure that he was under that year, and he did not, and I mean he took it and. Um, made a huge difference a little bit. Did you ever get a chance to meet him back then or since then? Yes, yes. Um, I met him um, actually about 2005 when a uh, professor from Syracuse University wanted to do a, uh, a documentary on Ernest Withers and I. And, uh, and so we traced some of the places we had been. We started, you know, in Memphis, and then we went to Little Rock, and then we went to Oxford. And uh, so we had breakfast one morning with uh, James Meredith. And uh, interestingly, he told me that uh, I was telling him that when I was on campus and I saw this young black man who didn't, uh, had never heard of him uh, and never knew what he did. And uh, this young man was, was so uh, awed by what I said and about what and what James Meredith had done that he um, he turned his baseball cap around, you know, into a more respectful position. Um, but uh, I I just I found him always uh, a person who was um, courageous, independent-minded. Um, you know, he, he didn't. I, I love the fact that he led that march against fear 
on that. Yeah, no, I mean, his his courage and what he continues to do and, you know, he's not afraid to speak out. And it's always fun. I remember one time we literally were walking through our church and he was sitting in a chair waiting for his granddaughter to come out of Sunday school. And I just said to my boys, I said, I want you to meet one of the most important people you'll ever get to meet in your life. It was just a really cool moment. And that that's we almost are spoiled in the way that he's a part of it. But also, too, we're very spoiled the fact that we got to talk to you today as well. And I want to say congratulations on the Washington Press Club awarding you to a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was definitely richly deserved. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much. It's very nice to get to meet you and get to talk to you. And congratulations uh, for what you wrote in the book. I, you know, I can't wait to get the whole book. It's going to be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, the interview. And uh, I like people who have read enough of the book to really <laughs> dig deep. That's what you did. Well, I appreciate it. That is a huge compliment. It really is. That means the world to me. But it's, like I said, it's a fantastic story. And it's one that I pass along to my son, too, because he's He's doing a little bit of journalism right now, too. So thank you so much. And we've enjoyed the show today. Boy, it's been a good one. Really had two great interviews. And we're just going to take it and bring it on home with a third fantastic interview as well. We are going to welcome the editor of the James Meredith Breaking the Barrier, Dr. Kathleen Wickham. Uh, many of you probably know Kathleen Wickham. She's uh, been up at Ole Miss for quite a couple years anyway, and has made a huge difference. And what? And I'm just a huge fan as well. So I'll try not to gush too much. Kathleen, it's good to talk to you. Glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you for inviting me and uh, Dorothy and Sidna so they could share their stories with all your listeners. Yeah, did you get to hear them? They were really good. I did. I was listening. Yeah. So um, I'm why you listen to the show? I, I'm touched. That, that's great. That's fantastic. It wasn't too, too painful, to say the least. I, I tell you, I loved your chapter just because I felt like I knew a lot about um, Mr. Gehard and his his story, but I didn't. And, you know, I mean, I've sat in the bench right outside of Farley Hall uh, that's dedicated to him. And, and I knew his story. I knew he was one of the two people that was shot that night. And I knew that there was still a degree of mystery to it. Um, I didn't realize that he was there just by fate and by chance um, that he was a copy editor and he got sent at the last minute down there and the fact that he got to the the riot late. And there was just so many factors that I did not know that contributed, probably contributed to his death, but also too, what an incredible human being he was and how alive he was. And, you know, it's just, it just, once again, the whole night was just horrible and it was just on so many different levels, but just losing his life was just, it seemed to be another layer of, of just made me disgusted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was shot in the back from a foot away. The murder remains unsolved. Um, the best research seems to indicate that he came across men unloading rifles, probably members of the KKK. He may have, like all reporters, carried a small camera with him and pulled the uh, camera out to take photos of this when he was uh, shot in the back. I at one point interviewed a woman who said that she had seen someone stopping on a camera camera back in that vicinity, and his brother confirmed me that he probably did carry a small camera with him. Um, And he was murdered roughly 10 minutes after he arrived on campus. And that probably contributed to it also because he got there as the riot was going on. He didn't have necessarily press credentials, but it also sounds like that when he was going to take a picture of something that they didn't want to see happen, that probably had as much to do with it as um, as well. 
Yeah, evil flourishes in darkness. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating, too. I mean, for for folks that don't know much about him, he obviously he was sent to Fr- – I still amazing to get away from the Blitz. They sent him to France, his parents did. Yes. His parents um, owned a hotel in London and felt that for the safety of Paul and his younger brother, they would be better off in France. Um, it's, it's When you look in retrospect, uh, well, perhaps that didn't turn out very well. But at the time, what did they know about what was going to happen? Um, and they felt that was the safest place. And I often, I, I've been sent low, uh, I went there with his brother, and when I walked the rampart there overlooking the um, English Channel, I could see a boy, a young boy, a curious boy, standing on this rampart and wondering not only how his parents were doing, but what was happening because since they were in the occupation, they had almost no access to news about the outside world. And that can just, um, it can expand your worldview when you have the opportunity. You want to see the rest of the world. And so I, I truly think, um, based on my interviews with some of his um, childhood friends and his brother, that's what spurred him to uh, become an international reporter. Yeah, and he was also, he was in the British Army too, wasn't he? Yeah, everyone had to do that, though. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, and I think that's important, though, because it's like he didn't go into the riot necessarily as somebody who had never seen war and never had, you know, he was in Cyprus, um, you know, but, I mean, he was not, he was, he was not going into it naive. And that, that's no. the thing. He knew how to go around. He didn't go directly into the riot. He kind of went around the edges of it. Yes, I always feel that's partially military military training, check out what the scene is. And he was there with Sammy Shulman, his photographer. And I know I've been in situations where you, you split up with your photographer. You go that way, I'll go this way. You know, let's meet back here. Let's see what's going on before we decide what we want to do next. And and you can see it when, when I stand. Um, I do on the steps of Farley. Um, when I do my tour, I go, you look over the grove. He, they came in, University Avenue entrance, they're walking, they're walking, they hear, smell, they, they know that the radio broadcast, they just heard of President Kennedy saying, all is well, it's not matching up. And so they split. One goes left, one goes right. He goes beh- um, behind the fine arts building um, so he can see what's going on instead of walking directly into the past. And it was just uh, army training and good journalism not to jump right into a riot, but to assess the situation. But like you said, he got into a dark spot, and unfortunately it was just, you know, bad fate. Yeah, yeah. bad fate. And the reason, um, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear that you actually sit on his bench and, and read the uh, label. The reason the bench is in that location is because by the time um, – um, Farley, Farley went to renovation, um, and by the time we were able to install the bench, one of the sororities had installed the meditation circle uh, there by the student union, and it just didn't seem appropriate to add Paul's bench where the sorority had their own activity place. And, and so we, we looked at um, what we knew about that night, and at roughly 3 a.m., the U.S. Army came up sorority row, bayonet six, 
know, have two, three, four. And I thought, you know, if, if Paul had lived, he would have been somewhere here on Sorority Row observing and reporting on this. So it seemed appropriate to put him there in the, um, by Farley Hall, the School of Journalism location, and where he might have been had he lived. Yeah, I thought I I agree. I think that that's a fan. And it also, too, it's kind of good for journalism students when they're coming out of class to see that and see that reminder of what, you know, courage is, you know, and what, you know, obviously reporting, no matter what the danger is, truly means. And the same is true with the historic plaque. Um, we had an initial choice of having it either inside or outside. And we said we want it outside. The historic plaque honors Paul and the 300 plus reporters who were there and who put their lives on the line because they were beaten, they were shot at, they had their equipment destroyed, but they didn't leave. Right. <laughs> they, they stayed. Um, and when SB, the Society of Professional Journalists awarded the plaque, it actually was the 100th award um, of that kind by the Society. And that was kind of, that's always kind of cool when you're like the, you know, the first 50th, 100th. There's something about the numbers that makes it extra special. Yeah, and definitely. I mean, what, um, what and I'm so glad you got to meet Alan, too, and get to talk to him. And so you could flesh out who Paul was as a human being, because I think that's really an important part of the story. Yeah, and he's, he was a very elegant man. Um, he's about, if I'm eight years younger than his brother, uh, and I have a sibling roughly the same age younger. So you have different perspectives of of a distant sibling, but certainly he did have strong memories of growing up with Paul. That's great. That's great as well. And I thought it was fascinating when we were talking to Sidna that Shulman was actually with her when he found out that Paul had been killed, been murdered. Right. He, um, I guess, you know, he couldn't find Paul. So what do you do next? You check in with the local press outlet um, when you're a visitor. And he was over there and, um, Sidney was showing him the facilities in Brady Hall. Um, Brady Hall was located as you enter campus from University Avenue on the left-hand side. Um, it is no longer there. Uh, the pharmacy building occupies that location. So that gives you, a, for those who know campus, a visual image as to where uh, Sidney and, um, and Brady Hall uh, were located. Wasn't Hugh Calvin Murray the other person killed? Wasn't, wasn't he killed not too far from there, wasn't he? If I'm trying to remember correctly. Um, can't, I can't remember. It was near the railroad bridge person. anyway, somewhere or somewhere around yeah. there. So, he, yeah. He was leaving. He, yeah. he came from Abbeville. He was just checking out the action. And he was shit, hit by um, scattered shots. Yeah, and his baby was born the next day. You know, just yeah. so it was like, eh, maybe that wasn't such a, a good decision to, to go that night on that. Um Paul, Paul arrived late for a reason. I mean, he went in like a lot of reporters. He didn't fly into Memphis. He, he actually flew into Jackson, didn't he? And he uh, attended a, a Citizens Council rally at the governor's mansion, and he had a, a pretty important interview that day as well. Well, and he did with the people who were um, in Jackson, and that actually caused some um, consternation later because um, it was a Sunday, and only, that was the only building that was open. We have to remember, we have cell phones in 1962, and if you were a reporter, you needed either a pay phone or someone friendly who would give you a phone where you could dial and get a long-distance line. And so he used the Citizen Council's offices to call in this story. 
And that later led people to say, oh, that he was one of us. He was, you know, he, he, he was with us because he had used those facilities. And um, that, of course, wasn't true. It's just common practice at the time. Um, they needed a phone. I mean, you know. They needed a phone. Yeah. They needed a phone. And in fact, here's, here's a story that isn't that well known, uh, even about the military. Um, <laughs> when the marshals took over the um, Lyceum, uh, they also needed a communications um, devices. And they weren't comfortable calling out in the university lines. So there were three pay phones in the lobby of the Lyceum. And uh, I believe it was uh, Katzenbach took a dime and plunked it in one of the payphones and called the White House, and they kept that line open um, throughout the night. That's incredible. That that truly is. Um, talk about the book a little bit about putting it together and getting to edit. And like I said, you know, getting to talk to Dorothy and Sidna both was just very inspiring today. And you know, anybody who knows a young journalist, you know, their stories definitely need to be told. On that, but I mean, for you, that had to be fun to to get to edit it and get to put it together. I've been um, people ask me how did I get involved in uh, covering these stories, and and I always tell them it was Paul that during the 40th anniversary um, when I started reading a lot of material, I was became kind of upset that that a reporter was murdered on my campus and also got me a sentence or a paragraph. And that's what led me down this path of exploring uh, how media covered um, the riot and, and the media's view of, of the riot. So that led to the publication of my first book, uh, We Believe We Were Immortal. And that led to me then being asked to serve in the 60th Anniversary Committee. And we were talking one day about, well, we need some type of commemorative item. And I just very quietly said, um, a book? And they went, a book? A book. What kind of book? And I said, well, we could get people who were there to write essays. And so that's what, what spawned it. And I was determined that the book, I had uh, many goals for the book. But one, I wanted to make sure the authors were diverse. I wanted diverse voices. Um, and that, that has is something that's not often necessarily considered in um, in a lot of discussions about media coverage. And so what you will see is there are five men and five women authors in the book. There are an equal number of black authors and white authors. Um, again, because I wanted these diverse voices um, in the book. And I had interviewed... Um, Dorothy Gilliam before for the earlier book, and I knew Jesse Holland as a as an alum, um, and I asked my colleague Marquita Smith to um, work on a chapter of the black voices who were impacted by Meredith, because I don't see a lot of that in my research. We've we've yeah. run out of time, but I oh, I'm so sorry. no, that's okay. No, it's great. Thank you. I mean, you were wonderful as usual, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to thank our other guests, Sidna Brower Mitchell and Dorothy Gilliam, for joining us too. On the book is called James Meredith Breaking the Barrier. And if you'd like to hear this show again or any past episodes, you can listen to our podcast or your favorite podcast app, or on our MPB Public Media app. Now you're talking is production of MPB Think Radio. 
That's right. That's what you're listening to. And it's produced by the incredibly talented and wonderful Jermaine Flood. Join us next week, same time, same place, and we'll have yet another fantastic, amazing conversation right here on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll